Welcome to Happy Hunters. We're your hosts, Molly. And Jonathan. Today's interview is with Jojo Schloven. He is a dedicated advocate for troubled youth, an incredible musician, and a true believer in making a difference. Sometimes I'll take a vacation. I'll take two days off of work, have a four-day weekend. Sometimes I'll even take like a week off, and then I'll do nothing but music all day. It's not only that it's enjoyable, but it rejuvenates me for the next week. We just want to take a moment to tell you how much we love one of our sponsors, Nature's Head Composting Toilet. When we renovated the bathroom in the camper, we got rid of our old flush toilet and made the switch to a composting one and could not be happier. I did have some reservations at first, but Nature's Head has thought of everything. With minimal parts and easy assembly, installation was super simple, and when it comes to emptying, it is a breeze. Plus, there is no odor. With all the time we spend outside, we know that each small action makes a big difference. So my favorite part of using a composting toilet is how it's waterless. Did you know that the average toilet uses three and a half gallons of water per flush? Just think of how many gallons a day that is. Our composting toilet helps us conserve water, and it's so easy to use. We actually purchased our toilet months before Nature's Head Composting Toilet was even a sponsor. For more information, go to natureshead.net. That's natureshead.net to get yours today. Today we are with musician and social worker Jojo Shklovin. He was a professional musician for 15 years and found that he wasn't able to be himself in that field. So at 40, Jojo started a new career as a social worker where he brings just as much passion as he did his music. Hi, Jojo. Welcome to Happy Hunters. Your ability to work in an emotionally heavy environment, find time to express yourself musically, and make time for friends and family is impressive. Music brings you joy, and you have found ways to incorporate it into your daily routine, whether it is professionally or personally. We are so excited that you are joining us today. Welcome. Thank you. Playing music is a big part of your life. It's one of the things you do on a regular basis that brings you joy. You play for your friends, family, and you also write songs. How do you find time to fulfill this while juggling your career and life's other obligations? Well, the pattern I've got into over the last few years, which seems to work the best, is I do music on the weekends. I have to play with like as much energy as I can muster. I'm not like one of those musicians that just plays sort of soft and quiet and and that I I put as much energy as I can into it but that means that like Monday through Thursday I don't have that energy at the end of the day you know we get up at 6 15 for work I get back from work and I walk the dogs and then we start getting dinner ready and by the time everything is cleaned up that's pretty much the end of my energy for the day right so I can't go out to my music studio and spend two or three hours working on the music because I just don't have the energy to do it. It just, it doesn't happen. Right. So you've, you filled this passion on the weekends. Exactly. Now, 
Other times I do it. Sometimes I'll take a vacation. I'll take two days off of work, have a four-day weekend. Sometimes I'll even take like a week off and then I'll do nothing but music all day. It's not only that it's enjoyable, but it rejuvenates me for the next week. If I neglect the weekend and go the weekend without playing, I'm not in as good of a mental state. So if I really play and sing and write hard all weekend, then I feel like, all right, I can make it through the next four or five days. I tried picking up the guitar. And for me, I found it hard to make space in my busy life to dedicate time to practicing. Is dedication something that can be taught? Or is that a trait that comes out of the passion? If you're passionate about it, you sort of want to do that above everything else. When I'm playing my guitar and I'm working on my music, there's no place else I'd rather be and nowhere else I'd rather go. You guys travel all over the place. At this point in my life, other than going to San Miguel and going to L.A. to visit some friends, I hardly travel at all and really don't want to travel at all. And for me, this is the best, most rejuvenating, most enjoyable thing that I can do. And it's sort of been that way since I was about five. So I just have to accept that it's part of me that, that I need to do. So being a musician was actually your first career. How did you know you wanted to pursue music as a means to make money rather than keeping it as a hobby? Part of it was the context of the times. In high school, I played in a band with some friends, and we worked all the time. In fact, most of the time, I was probably in two bands. So we would work. We played parties and confirmations and bar mitzvahs and graduations and just all kinds of events. So we didn't make a lot of money, but we were in high school. So we were at least making some money. And then when I went away to college at Michigan State, the fraternity scene, sorority scene was so big at that time. We played three gigs every weekend. We'd play a Friday afternoon party, a Friday night party, and a Saturday night party. Wow. <laughs> we were making money all the time. There was a, quite a call for live music in those days. Right? There wasn't much in the way of DJs. There wasn't no such thing as electronic music for dance music. If you wanted to go out dancing or go see some music, it was live music. So lots and lots of bars and clubs were hiring bands. You could make some money as a musician. If you could do that and it was fun, that was better than working some other type of job. What made you shift away from being a professional musician to start a career as a social worker? I think I worked as a musician pretty much for about 15 years. When Andy was in vet school, so I was teaching at Lansing Community College, teaching music and playing in a couple of bands, three bands actually. And then Andy finished, we moved back to, to the Detroit area and she got a job at a vet clinic and I kept playing music. But after a couple more years of that, so there I'm 33, 34, and I was in bands that were working all the time. We were, in those times, clubs would hire a band for a month and you'd work five or six nights a week for wow. a month. So we'd work from nine to two at night. It was like a full-time job. If you could line up a half a dozen of those jobs and then come back to them six months later, you could line up work a year ahead of time, which is what we did. It's not that the work wasn't there, but I can remember playing in some of the clubs at night and sort of stopping and thinking to myself, do I want to be doing this five years from now? 
do I want to be doing this 10 years from now? And the answer I really came up with was no. I had no drive to be superstar in music. And so I decided to look around for something else. I knew that mental health was something I'd always been interested in. That was the field my dad had been in. I volunteered down at Lafayette Clinic, which was a state hospital in Detroit. That was a children's hospital that took all the toughest cases from all over the state. And I volunteered to do music activities with the kids once a week. And then I got a job at a psychiatric hospital on a children's unit. And I was just a regular direct care, you know, mental health worker. But I looked around at what the other people were doing. So there was psych nurses there, psychiatrists, psychologists, activity therapists, music therapists, social workers. And I looked at what they were all doing. And I actually felt closest to what the social workers were doing. I liked what they were doing the best. I said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I had to go back and finish up a year of credits in undergraduate because here I was 37 years old, never graduated college. I went back, took a year of classes, got into Wayne State Social Work School. And when I graduated from that, after two years, I was 40 and starting my social work career. So I never stopped doing music, but I thought to myself, you know, when I'm playing these clubs, all right, I got to play everything. I got to play Stevie Wonder and Willie Nelson and Diana Ross and Earth, Wind and Fire and everybody. But if I just go make my money at a regular job, then I can do whatever I want with my music. I got nobody saying, you got to learn this, you got to learn that. And I can just work on my own music at my own pace. And that's what I'll do. So that's what made the most sense to me. Did working as a musician uh, start to affect your passion for music? But yes, it did. If you wanted to work, you had to adjust to each club. So once in a while, there would be a club that let you play some of your original stuff and work it into your set. But it didn't really let you present yourself as an original band. You were coming in there to play dance music, to get people up and dancing so they would drink more, spend more money at the bar. Right. If they liked the band, so they'd stay late into the night and buy more drinks and buy drinks for their friends. And so you were expected to hang out and talk with the audience and make friends and talk to the regulars. And you were there to make the bar more money. You weren't there to showcase yourself as an original type band. Now, there were bands doing that at the time, but they weren't making a cent. So they had to make money some other way. It wasn't that I was losing my passion for the music. I was losing my passion for that structure, for that context. Mm. Music and social work seem like such different paths, yet they both bring you fulfillment. What does music fulfill that social work does not and vice versa? Well, they fulfill very, very, very different things. I think each person's connection to music is different. Experience it in a different way and like different kinds of music. But there's one fact that just can't be denied. Anthropologists who have studied tribal cultures all over the world, there's never been a culture found without music. There's never been a tribe anywhere that didn't create music. And when they looked at tribes who have been relatively untouched by modern civilization, most of that music was part of their ritual, traditional, spiritual culture but it also told the stories of their ancestors. The music of the culture was the way that the elders of the culture passed along the history of the tribe, the history of their myths about the world, and they taught it to the kids. 
every culture everywhere, no matter how small, you know, had music. I don't understand it in literal terms, but there's some connection between people and music. Something happens when you play. It's the rhythm, it's the feel, it's the melody, it's the whole thing. When I play, I'm lucky enough, I sort of feel a connection with all the people that have ever played music ever throughout history. It's only been the last 110, 120 years or so in all of history that music has ever been recorded. So for 99.9% .9 of human history, all music was just played in the moment and then gone out into the air. And I like that part of it. I'm not all that fond of recording. I like that it's, it's right there in the moment, then it's gone and you, you move on to the next moment from there. Now, the connection to social work has much more to do with my view of the world and my view of how our political and economic structures affect our youth and families. You said that your job as a social worker, where you work with youth on probation and in the foster system, matches your values and outlook. What are those values? I don't think about them in some real linear way. I just think about them as how people should be treated in the world and the reality of how people are treated in the world and how much racism is used to divide people, uh, how much borders are used to divide people. Looking at what exists right now compared to what you'd like to see in the future, the value of each human deserves respect and deserves a chance to have a life as a kid that's reasonably playful, safe life. For me, I look around and I see that there are systems that our society, our country has created. For example, the, the mental health system, the educational system, juvenile justice system, the medical system, and many of them turn out to treat these people in a very negative way. And I don't mean blanket, I don't mean general, I don't mean everybody all the time, but especially kids of color and poor kids often get mistreated by these different systems. So for example, with the educational system, um, if a kid is designated as an acting up kid, the school system never sees that kid as needing help due to their past or just being a different kind of kid, but they see it as a management problem and what's wrong with this kid? The juvenile justice system is very, very, very slowly transforming. And I know a lot of people out here who have gone in to get jobs at juvenile hall, and they actually do respect kids, and they actually do treat kids in a positive way and encourage kids. But this is pretty new. And the same thing with the medical system, the mental health system. So these systems really mess with people's lives in a lot of ways. And so our program is a way to help support these kids and listen to these kids because no one listens to them. Kids who get in trouble in school, kids who get in trouble with the juvenile justice system, no one listens to them. Everyone just assumes these are bad kids. So we go and we listen and it kind of shocks the kids to have people actually listening to them. So that's how it matches my values. The system disrespects the kids. We respect the kids. The system doesn't listen to the kids. We listen to the kids. The system doesn't support the kids. We support the kids and the families. How does working such a challenging but important career bring you joy? 
you have to have joy in this in the small wins, the victories that take place. When we meet with families and kids who are on probation, we make it clear to them that our focus is to help them get off probation and get the juvenile justice system out of their life. And that's something they can actually understand because no one's ever tried to help them with that before. But in the process of doing that, we also work on family relationships. We work on their school situation and how they're doing in their community. You get small victories in here. You get kids who have experiences of being violent in their community and they stop being violent. You have experiences where kids are failing all their courses and maybe you find them a new school program, they can have some success. You have a situation where there's tremendous conflict within the family, but then you can work with the family to improve the relationships and communication. Kid graduates high school, that's a huge victory. Kid gets off probation, that's a huge victory. A kid gets reunited with their family. That can be a huge victory. But there's a lot of small victories along the way. Part of my job as a supervisor is to help the people in our program and our teams see these small victories. Let me give you a quick example. Let's say they start working with a family and a kid, and six months later, they're going, well, things are going so great, and the kid's doing this, and the kid's doing that. And I say, hold on, let's look back at six months ago when you started. How did things look then, and what's going on now that's different? And then they can actually step back and see that the six months they've worked with this kid, there has been a difference. Maybe it's small. Maybe it's just that the kid isn't doing certain negative things now. Maybe they're not doing great things, but they've stopped doing some bad things. I get them to realize that there are small victories along the way. You believe that the ability to be happy depends on a person's experiences, how they react and recover from traumatic events and losses. Given the field that you work in, you probably see firsthand the effect these experiences can have on people. How have you seen them rise above life's challenges? Sometimes they have this sort of inner strength that you can't really teach. On on a really basic level, they kind of believe in themselves, even if they're only 13 or 14. And that's a huge strength to build up if they have that. I think it's very hard to teach that. But it's not that hard to encourage it. So if somebody has it a little bit, you can really, really, really encourage it and build on it. And part of that is to help them see their strengths. A lot of kids just do not see their own strengths. So you take a kid who lives in a poor area of Oakland at 13 or 14 is hanging around with gang members and is being taught how to rob and how to steal, how to sell drugs, how to sell guns. And you think of all that as being negative. But this also may be a kid who's fantastic at building interpersonal relationships. They just happen to be building them with people who are steering them in really dangerous directions, but they might be really good at it, and they don't even see that. So you could point out a kid's strengths to them. After we get to know a kid, we see these strengths in you. Now let's figure out how you want to use them and not put yourself so much at risk. Witnessing perseverance in these children, not giving up, and them rising above what life has given them, what perspective has it given you on life, and uh, what have you learned from watching them? One of the things that it's taught me, and I say this to the kids that I'm working with, is to never let other people define you. When I taught in the school, 
it was the kids who had dropped out of every level of public school support. So you go from regular classrooms to special ed to school-based day treatment. They have different levels based on how much staff are needed in the room. And when you drop through all those levels and you're at the last stop, that's what our school was here in Oakland that I worked in for eight years. And this kid came into school. He was 10 years old. He was a really cool kid. And he actually wanted to be a comedian in life. And after I got to know him for a few days, comes into my office and he goes, this school is really great. He says, at my last school, I was the bad kid. Here, we're all bad kids. <laughs> and he was saying, it's like, hey, I feel at home here, right? But he was also being funny. But what he meant is we're all defined as bad kids. He didn't think of himself as a bad kid. He was making fun of the system at 10 years old. I guess my perspective is to never let other people define you. And the real key, really, it's about relationship and consistency. You got to show the kids that you're consistent. Not that you're going to show up one week, but not the next week. And that relationship is really important to you. You're hoping that they connect on that as well, that relationship is important to them. Now, I do want to point out when we were talking about victories and stuff, there's also a lot of losses here. Kids get rearrested. Kids get shot. We get one kid killed at least once a year and several shot. There are a lot of losses here. Kids make errors in judgment and end up in bad situations. And also there are some kids who, for whatever reason, they're not quite ready for a relationship like we're offering. We just have to allow them to make that decision and move on to another kid and family. Some kids, they want to do what they want to do and not ready to make a change. And that's their call. It's their life. And they get to make that call. I'm not saying that, that everything we do works perfectly all the way down the line. We have good percentages, though. We're going to move on to the, the silly but important questions. If Bigfoot was real, what yeah. music would he or she listen to? What would Bigfoot listen to? Yeah, what music? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> nice. I can see him rumbling through the woods to Purple Haze. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you were a pair of shoes, what kind of shoe would you be? Well, I'm a new convert to this, but I'd have to be Dr. Scholl's. Oh, nice. You like that comfort. I was shopping for a pair of shoes, and of course, they don't want to say Dr. Scholl's on the shoes, right? Because that's like for old and boring people. <laughs> so they got this nice little S on the side of the shoe that no one knows it stands for Dr. Scholl's. Nice. But when I put these shoes on and walked around the store, I, I was shocked. So I bought them. Who is your favorite cartoon character? Who is my favorite cartoon character? It's a tough one. I, I'm probably going to remember somebody else over time, but there was this one kid. His name was Gerald McBoingBoing. <laughs> okay. You ever hear of him? No, but I like it. McBoingBoing. I don't know that he ever had his own comic strip. He was in. He had a. He was in a comic book. Yeah. And he was just like a little five, six-year-old kid who could imitate any sound. Okay. And it always got him out of trouble or saved somebody. Wow. You can look him up. Yeah, I will. Gerald McBoingBoing. <laughs> Gerald McBoingBoing. As a grown adult, I do enjoy cartoons. <laughs> do you remember the old Looney Tune uh, cartoons? And uh, they had like the, the mobsters. Bugs Bunny 
would get into like a little fight or Daffy Duck would get into a fight with uh with gangsters and there was always like the small little one that was tough. Yeah. And he had like that wise guy voice. Yeah. Uh, that's how I imagine our little terrier dog to have. Like if he had a cartoon <laughs> voice, he'd be like the yeah. the oh wise guy, eh? <laughs> I I often think of of Looney Tunes. <laughs> so is there anything else you'd like to share about happiness? A lot of these kids, due to a lot of different circumstances, due to their context, due to family conflict, due to physical or mental or emotional or sexual abuse or just all kinds of things, they are sort of robbed of their childhood happiness. You know, when I look back on my own childhood, which was essentially a safe childhood, you appreciate what what little happiness you can have in the world, and you realize that If our country, if our society could set its priorities straight, we could create a context that would create much happier kids, kids who had a chance to be happier and safer on a day-to-day basis. So, so much of this stuff that you mentioned, you talk about inner happiness. One of the things I've learned is that so much of it is context. What's around you, what you've seen, what's happened to you, what your family is like, what your neighborhood is like. That's the context. And if that context is harsh and full of conflict and dangerous, you don't think about being happy. You think about how am I going to get by from day to day? So I feel like happiness is almost a little bit of a luxury that people like me had because I had a pretty safe childhood and a pretty safe neighborhood. I think that's the way things could be for people. We're just, we're not there yet. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Happy Hunters today. I love how dedicated you are to what makes you happy and how you manage to balance your amazing work that you do with the children and your passion for music. Jojo loves music, but as a career, it was threatening his passion. So he left music professionally, but still makes abundant time for creating. Now, in his emotionally taxing job of helping troubled youth, he looks for the small victories. He is always finding ways to take a negative and turn it into a positive, constantly nourishing children's strengths. What are your small victories this week? What are your strengths and how can you acknowledge and nurture them? Are you willing to shift what you view as a negative within you to a positive? Head over to Happy Hunters Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook to share your experiences, connect with others, inspire, and empower. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and have found a little bit of inspiration to accompany you on your happiness journey. We are a brand new podcast and could use your help so others can find the show. Please subscribe, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Tune in for new episodes every Tuesday. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. If you know a happy someone who we should interview, head to iconoclasticwellness.com slash happyhunters to nominate them or yourself. Find us over on Instagram at Molly and Jonathan and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Our Tiny Mess, to stay up to date on our RV adventures. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.